in Scripture, we need all kinds of exhortation, if you think about it. Sometimes we need motivation and inspiration. We need to be overwhelmed with the person and grandeur of God. And those kinds of truths, they drive us to persevere. They drive us to endure. They drive us to have the right motivation and the right purpose. And yet there are other times that you have other kinds of exhortation in Scripture. You have things that are convicting. You have things that are precise. You have things that are practical. They don't open your minds unto heaven, but they open your minds unto earth. And they are specific charges and specific convictions that you need to conform your life to unto Christ. And so you have kind of this notion of the heavenly and the theological and the grand and the beautiful, but at the same time, you also have the immensely particular and the immensely practical and the immensely step-by-step procedure of how to do things, and you really do need both of them. You need both of them. And that's why the scripture has both of them. You can see this, say, in the New Testament, even in one book, You will have the first part, say in the letters of Paul, that talk about what we call the indicatives, all the truths. The truths say in Romans about the gospel and God's plan. The truths say in Ephesians about the church and God's plan. The truths say in Colossians about the supremacy and the transcendence and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the opening, you hear these truths and you understand how these things are and you understand why it is so perfect and why it is so grand and why it is so lofty. But in the second half of the book, in Romans 12 through 16, our Ephesians 4 through 6, our Colossians 3 through 4, what do we have? We have, how do you live this now? How do you live this now? You need both. You have to have both. Without one, without the theology, without the understanding of Christ, without the understanding of God, without the understanding of the gospel, without the understanding of rich truth in its fullness, you have no motivation to do what you're supposed to do. You have no proper goal of why you're doing it. It is no longer what you do will become worship. It will become legalism if you do not have the whole truth. You need the truth. That's what empowers you. That's what makes the Christian life the Christian life, not just life. And so you need that. But without the other, without the specifics, without the practical, without the particular, you get nothing done. It reminds me of meetings sometimes in business and such, and people are talking about these great ideas, and they're saying, that's amazing, I love that. And they just run out of the room, and you say, wait, How are we going to actually do that? People say, I don't know, but it sure felt good talking about it, and they just run out. Well, you'll never get anything done that way. You need both. You need the lofty. You need the glory. You need the zeal, but you also need the practical to put hands and feet to every single thing you are to do. You need both. And we listed some New Testament examples, but in the Old Testament, there is an example of two prophets who ministered side by side. And there's a reason why they ministered side by side, because one was the inspirational and the other one was the practical, Zechariah and Haggai. Zechariah and Haggai. Zechariah, he's the lofty guy. He opens up his book with a series of visions. Actually, it's one dream. It's inception before it's time. He has a dream within a dream, so to speak, and he's just thinking of all these different things of how God is going to work, all of his promises. He's the one who prophesies God's entire plan of how the Messiah will come, riding on a donkey, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, return triumphant. All Israel will mourn over him and come back to him, and he will make all things new. There will be a new day with a new king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Zechariah sees all of this and gives everyone a big picture to say, that's your story. That's what you're a part of. Know that your work is not in vain. That's motivational. And you say, that's amazing. But what are we supposed to do? Then Haggai comes out and says, why is it that you build your own house and you don't build God's house? Does that make any sense? He's the practical guy. He's the practical guy. He explains to people how to obey God what they have done wrong, 
and what they should do right and how to persevere in that and how to have perspective step by step by step by step by step. He guides people in what to exactly do with their lives so as to please God. You need both. You need both. So God sends both prophets at the same time to help his people have the right motivation for everything as well as the right activity for everything. And Haggai, the book that we are in right now, has been doing exactly what we've been talking about. He is the practical guy. He even opens his book, not with a vision or a dream like Zechariah. He opens his book by rebuking God's people. And sometimes we need a rebuke. Sometimes we need to be confronted. Sometimes we need to be convicted because we have become apathetic, because we have done exactly what Israel was doing back in those days. Back then, they were not rebuilding the temple. And you say, what's the big deal? It's just a building. Why is it a big deal that they do not rebuild the temple? It is in simple sum this. By not rebuilding the temple, they had no priority on worship. That's what happened around the temple. You have worship. And what they were doing by refraining from rebuilding the temple was saying, we don't care about worshiping God. We don't care about praising him or having our life centered around him. And in addition to worship, it also was about witness because the temple was the manifestation of the presence of God in this world. It was the demonstration that God had not abandoned this world and that his plan was moving forward. And it was Israel's responsibility and their privilege and their honor to build this building so as to proclaim to all the nations, our God still reigns. And in spite of that, Israel did not build. And what they basically said is, we don't care about proclaiming Christ. We don't care about testifying to the world that our God still reigns. Our God is not our priority anymore. And so what may appear to be something insignificant was very significant. And often, while we may criticize Israel, our own hearts sometimes put aside the priority of worship. And sometimes our own hearts set aside the priority of witness. And we make excuses like Israel made excuses. Israel said this in Haggai. They said, it isn't the right time. How often do we say that? Oh, it's not a good time right now. It's not a good time right now. And then sometimes they diminish their responsibility. They don't say, for us to rebuild the temple. They just say, for the temple to be rebuilt. They don't want to even include themselves in their own excuse because they know that that would mean that they were responsible. How often is it that we try to blame everything else around us and never take responsibility ourselves? And sometimes then, in light of all of this, like Israel, we all need to be convicted. We all need to be rebuked. We all need God to step in and eviscerate our excuses. And God says, if you really think It's not a good time. Why is it, he says, that you have time to build paneled houses for yourself, Israel? If if you have no time on your hands, if you ran out of all time, why is it that you can spend so many hours on yourself and not me? That's a very convicting question. And God says, why is it that you care, Israel, about everyone else? It's always you, yourself, and that's all you care about and not me. Why is it that way? And God gives a rebuke. And he gives a rebuke to Israel, but the words still, under inspiration, ring true to this very day. We make lots of excuses for why God is not our priority. We make lots of excuses. And Haggai, in his opening words, he doesn't start with a vision. He starts swinging with a reprimand. And we need it. Because sometimes we are in apathy. Sometimes we have the wrong priorities. We do not prioritize God. And we make lots of justifications and lots of excuses behind it. And God just needs to destroy them all. And we need to be exposed to how sinful we are. And that's what Haggai does. He's the practical guy. He's the guy who convicts you of the specific things and the specific ways you've gone wrong. That's his job. But Haggai doesn't just stop there. 
that's the first six verses of him just tearing us to shreds of, over our false excuses, over our sinfulness. He doesn't, though, just tell you what not to do and point out where you went wrong. Haggai will tell you what to do and how to make it right. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Haggai 1, 7 through 11. Haggai 1, 7 through 11, we're going to see not just, hey, you've done wrong. You have no excuse. You need to take responsibility for this sin. But now you need to repent of it. And here's then what you should do. Here's how you make it right. Here is the nature of true obedience. Haggai, in his exhortation to Israel, will walk us step by step in what really true God-honoring obedience looks like. That's Haggai's job. He's the practical guy, step by step by step. And you say, do we really need instruction on how to truly obey God? It's easy to obey God. You just do it. You just do what he says. That's it. Really? I think we all know, even in our own practical lives, that just doing what somebody says is not necessarily true obedience. Take, for example, the following instances. And before I get into them, let me, let me just be clear. A lot of them will involve parenting, the, the examples I'll give in this message. And you might wonder, is this coming from personal experience? Uh, to be clear, no, at least not at this moment, so I'm not trying to indict my children who are sitting here in front of us, and, uh, but if you want to, you know, encourage them, that's, that's great. But no, they're, they're, they're pretty good, or at least they've learned their lessons. So the, but these are just hypothetical examples, and you say, hey, you mentioned students a lot. Has this truly happened? Almost never, but pretty close, but we'll, we'll but all that to say is I think from these examples that I'm about to give with those caveats that you will understand pretty quickly. We know obedience is much more than just doing something. For example, when you talk to your children and you say, take out the crash, and what do they say? Okay. Is that true obedience? And then they take the trash bag and they start swinging it around like a Greek Orthodox priest with uh, incense. <laughs> And instead of spreading the incense, it's spreading, it's anointing the floor with garbage. And they walk out and it hits the wall and half the garbage bag opens up and then they throw the rest away. And they say, I took out the trash. Is that true obedience? They did it. Is that true obedience? It's like a student. You give them an assignment with clear instructions. You say, write a paper 10 pages long this many inches on the margin, and also make sure it's double-spaced. And then they turn in a paper, 10 pages, and the words are 71-point font. <laughs> and it just has their name. And they said, but I double-spaced it. Is that truly obedience? Even in our line of work, sometimes we turn in a report and we know it's poorly put together. It pretty much doesn't make any sense, but we hand it in anyways. Is that truly obedience? You did it. You did it. But was that really obedience? And we could point out in our lives things that we do for the Lord that maybe are even on that level too. Is that really obeying God? The reason we need to understand true obedience is because we understand obedience has to be it has to be more than just doing something. There are more components to that. There is a higher standard to it than what was just mentioned. And so Haggai, knowing Israel's heart, knowing the heart of all people, he will walk Israel step by step through the nature of true obedience so that they will understand and we all will understand what it really takes to please the Lord. What's the real standard? What's the real mentality? What does God really require in our day-to-day -day living for him? And so what I'd like to do is to have two points to this message that Haggai really himself is giving to us. One is the substance of true obedience, and we'll see that in verses 7 through 8. 
and the seriousness, second of all, of disobedience. The substance of true obedience, and second of all, the seriousness of disobedience. And putting those two together, we will have not only a definition of true obedience, but we'll have the motivation for it as well. So let's talk about that first point now, the substance of true obedience. Like I said, this is found in verses 7 through 8. And true obedience, as Haggai reminds us, actually, as Yahweh himself reminds us, thus says Yahweh of hosts, you need to have the right starting point. You need to have the right starting point. And in verse 7, notice what Yahweh says. You want to have true obedience? Here's your starting point. Set your heart. True obedience is not just about doing something. It's not just about going out there and externally accomplishing something. True obedience starts where? From your heart. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, people think that the Old Testament was just about externalism, that the Old Testament was just about external obedience, that that's all God cared about. He just cared about the outside. Nothing could be further from the truth. When God has the opportunity to define true obedience, where does he say it starts? From your heart. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. We know that. This has always been about the heart because that's where, whether it is about dealing with apathy, like Haggai talks about earlier in chapter 1, or here about what to do, namely about true obedience, it always begins from the heart. If you think that you can go out there and just do something for God and go through the motions and that satisfies him, you are mistaken. That is not true obedience. You have actually at that moment disobeyed God because you have not given him your heart, your heart. With the analogy of the child who says, okay, mom, I'll take out the trash. Their heart already is not right. And how often for God, when he says, forgive, when he says, do not retaliate back, do not reviled when reviled, hold your tongue, do not be angry, do we just say, okay, fine. You have just disobeyed because your heart is not right. Set your heart. The idea of setting your heart, it has the notion of establishing, fixing, focusing. It is set in stone in a particular direction, and so it is determined. This is not a half hearted effort. Obedience is never half-hearted. It is never lacking enthusiasm. It is never lacking zeal. It is all your inner being dedicated in a specific and particular direction. That is the nature of true obedience and true living for God. Sometimes people say, hey, you should think about this. And people respond, I just did. It's done. That's never how we treat the scriptures. That should never be how we understand the word of God and how it exhorts us. Set your heart. Set your heart. And notice specifically here it is, set your heart to consider your ways. We need to often, in light of God's word, take a good look at our lives to understand what God is doing in our lives, to understand the ways that we need to change and to make decisions to change them. Set your heart on your ways. Often, though, we do this instead. When the word of God comes to us, when we hear the truths of what God demands of us, how often is it that we say something like this? Well, I'm not that bad. Thank the Lord. It's okay. Yeah, a little bit of improvement, but not terrible. Or we do something like this. I'm not as bad as that person. That person, that's, he's really bad. She's terrible. So I'm, I'm, I don't have much to go through right now. The text does not say, set your heart on their ways. The text does not say, set your heart in comparison with other people's ways. The text says, set your heart on your ways. You evaluate your life. You understand what you're going through. You understand what you need to change and set your heart to change them. 
be determined from the inside out to obey God. Obedience starts from within. Obedience starts not by comparison, comparing yourself with others, but by it seeing what God has for you in your life. Obedience starts with a particular determination to reconform your life unto the Lord. It starts with a genuine attitude that desires to please God. Set your heart on your ways. That's the starting point of true obedience. And if you don't have that, you don't have obedience at all. It's just going through the motions. Set your heart. Well, you can't just start, though. That won't be good. That's important, but that's not going to be good enough. And so notice verse 8. It says this, go up. Set your heart on your ways. Now go up. And you say, why does Israel need to go up? Why do they need to ascend something? Why? Well, because they're going to a mountain. That's why. Look in the next part of the text. Go up to the mountain. How else are you going to get on a mountain? Mountains aren't below you, generally speaking, so you have to go up. It's very clear. It's very obvious. But there's a reason why Haggai, he words it this way. He could have said, go out to the mountain. He could have said, walk to the mountain. He could have said a lot of different things about the mountain. But he says, go up. And he even emphasizes that this that the trees that they need to cut, as we'll see later on in the verse, they're on the hills. They're on the high places of Israel. They're in elevated territories. Why? Because he's reminding Israel of a very important truth. This is going to take some effort. You have to go up. It's not just a walk out of the park. It's not just straight out there. You're going to have to go up, and you're going to have to go to places that are inconvenient for you. It's not just outside your door. And if you live around Jerusalem, these hills in this hill country, you're going to have to walk down a ravine and then back up a ravine. It's going to take work. It's going to be out of your way. It isn't easy, and it will take effort. And so in addition to having the right starting point, Haggai reminds people that you have to be proactive. You have to be proactive about your obedience. And that's very true. Have you ever thought about this? Why is it? that people never accomplish their New Year's resolutions. It's because you never start them. It's because it's January 1, and on your to-do list, you see the new resolution, and you say what? Well, we'll just postpone that to January 2. That's what we'll do. We'll just postpone it to January 2. And what happens on January 2? You just keep doing this, and all of a sudden, it becomes next year's New Year's resolution. It's December 31st, postponed to January 1. That's what we do because we're not proactive, we're not disciplined, we're not self-restraining to cause ourselves to, uh, by the grace of God, to focus and do the hard thing next. We're experts at procrastination. It's like the student who comes to me and says, Dr. Chow, can I have an extension? I'm really trying to work hard on this project. Oh yeah? When did you start? Yesterday. I said, I assigned this the first day of class. You had all semester. I know, but yeah, you procrastinated. You're very good at that. If we had a degree in procrastination, you would graduate top of your class. <laughs> We're good at putting things off. We're good at procrastinating. And we may chuckle about this when it comes to students or children or other things, but we can do this with our walk with the Lord. We know there's a sin that we need to take care of. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it a different day. It's not the right time. I'll do it when I feel better. We make every kind of excuse to just prolong and put off what should be done today. Growing up, my mother always told me the first and most hardest step of doing anything, whether that be, and in my case, it was often practicing musical instruments because, well, who doesn't struggle with that? So the, but the, the hardest step was the first step. And it's objectively true because what is hardest is to go from nothing or even negative to actually doing the right thing. After that, it just builds on from there. But to actually go from zero to everything, that's very difficult. That's very difficult. True obedience requires us to be proactive. 
to understand that this is going to take effort and it's going to be out of our way. It's going to be inconvenient, but we have to have the discipline, the moral excellence to pursue it. Speaking of which, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. In fact, put your finger in 2 Peter 1 or bookmark it or whatever you'd like to do for this first part of the message particularly because what is said in one book is going to be repeated and echoed in another for different purposes granted, but the consistency of Scripture is clear. 2 Peter 1. Notice in 2 Peter 1, this is walking us through the nature of sanctification, of how sanctification works and how you build a holy and hopeful life unto God and Christ. And what does he say? 2 Peter 1 verse 5, and adding to your earnestness in the faith, add, and here's the first phrase, moral excellence. Moral excellence, that's what the text says. The Greek word for moral excellence is the character and the drive and the energy to do something heroic. That's the classical definition. That when the moment comes and when the opportunity arises and when the crisis happens, you are of such disposition, such character, such discipline that you will always rise to the challenge and do what is required in the most noble way. That is what is required for true obedience. That's what Haggai's talking about here. You want to obey God? Have the right heart, starting point. You want to actually do something? You're going to have to put a lot of effort into this. You're going to have to have the right character about this. You're going to have to be determined to do this no matter what. You cannot hesitate. You cannot procrastinate. You cannot put off. You just seize the moment and you go for it. Go up to that mountain. You have to take the effort. Be proactive. Be proactive. But it's not just about having the right starting point or being proactive there's a, there's a third step in true obedience, and that is then you have to practice it. Then you have to practice it. Notice what Haggai says. Go up to the mountain, and then he says, and bring wood down from the mountain implied. You got to chop up the wood on the mountain and bring it down. And you say, why does he have to mention this step? Why does he have to instruct Israel about what to do exactly next, step by step by step? Because people get distracted. Do they not? When you start something, how often is it that things will automatically derail your process? You can see this with children even. Sometimes it's bad things that get them distracted. You say, go do your homework, and they go upstairs. They had the right starting point, hypothetically, and they had the right proactivity. They went upstairs. Good for them. And then what happens? You go check on them. They're playing video games. Sometimes they're just staring at their pencil. You don't even know why. Are they drawing pictures or doodling? They're distracted. And that's why parents often have to say, and when you get upstairs, the next thing you're going to do is sit down in your chair, and the next thing you're going to do, turn on your lights, and the next thing you're going to do, look at the book, and the next thing you're going to do is fill out every single problem, and these are the numbers. Why do we have to be so particular? Because we're prone to get distracted. And sometimes you can be distracted with good things. Sometimes people say, oh, I want to accomplish a project. And so they think about planning it. And they plan it. And they say, oh, that, that, that was a good plan. But I bet I can make it better. Then they keep making a better plan. And then guess what happens when they make a better plan? They say, I bet I can make that plan even better. And they keep doing it over and over and over again. And guess what they never do? The project. <laughs> or they say, oh, I, I bet we have a system. I bet we could create a system of organization to accomplish a certain task. And they keep recreating the system. The system becomes amazing. It's just never done. We can be distracted. And what Haggai says to Israel is this. Don't be distracted. What you're supposed to obey, do it. Do it. There are particular steps in how to accomplish the work of God. There are particular practical and specific steps in how you obey. Do the next thing. Do the next thing. Do not be distracted. Do not go on a rabbit trail. Do not go and divert your attention elsewhere. Do the next thing. Practice it. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is so important. 
So important. Notice, what do you do after you have moral excellence? Verse 5. Then you add to it what? Knowledge. Do the next thing. And then what happens after you add knowledge? To the knowledge, add what? Self-control. Don't become distracted. Don't divert. Don't move away. Instead, have the discipline, have the self-control to take what you know and do it. Do not hesitate. Do not procrastinate on it. And do the next thing and do the next tangible thing Peter is following and Haggai's footsteps and Haggai's echoing the same truth that Peter says. You want to know how true obedience works? Have the right heart. And then be proactive enough to start it. And then once you start it, actually engage in it. Practice it. Practice it. But there's another point. There's another point. And we would know that if for Israel, if they went up to the mountain and they brought down wood, that wouldn't be good enough. It's not good enough just to have the right starting point. It's not just good enough to be proactive about it. It's not just good enough to practice it. you got to have more than that. You say, why? Well, think about it. If Israel, at this point, just stopped, what would they have? A pile of wood on the ground. And that, last time I checked, is no rebuilt temple. So you can't just have a good starting point. You can't just be proactive. You can't just practice. You have to have perseverance. You have to have perseverance. What are God's final words of this phrase? I love it. Rebuild the house of God. If you didn't get the step-by-step process, that's the other step. Rebuild the house of God. Yeah, you need the wood, and while there would be wood that would come out from other countries and such to build the main framework of the home, of, of God's home, rather, you would need your own wood from the hills to build the scaffolding and such so that you could construct the temple. And so God gives all these things step-by-step with the end result that they would rebuild God's house. Obedience isn't done until it's done. It's done. And this should be obvious to us. You can't just start. You have to finish. That's another reason why New Year's resolutions never get done. It's because even if we do start them, we quit by February. That's what often happens. We lack tenacity. We lack steadfastness. But what God requires, what true obedience is, isn't just a good try. It isn't just a good try. It's finishing the job. And we remind that, and we know that for students. A paper is not just turning in an outline with notes. We know that. For kids, how often do we have to remind them about their chores? That mopping the floor isn't just holding a mop. It's actually moving it around on the floor to clean it. And then after you mop it and you clean it, then you have to make sure it's dry so people don't slip on it. And then after all that's done, you're not done until you put and clean the mop and put it away. It's not done until it's done. We know that. We know that. We just never apply it to our life with God. 2 Peter 1, turn back there. What does Peter say? You have the moral excellence. What do you add to it? Knowledge and knowledge, self-control. Why? Because you have to practice this. You have to practice obedience, okay? But what do you add to self-control? What's the next word? Perseverance. Perseverance. Why? Because the temptation will always be that you'll quit. And you'll never become godly that way. And you'll never be conformed to Christ that way. You have to keep going. You have to be consistent. You cannot stop until the job is done. That's what our mentality is. In our culture and in our society, often people say, well, he meant well. Oh, that was a good try. Have a participation trophy. We have this kind of mentality. And in God's economy, though, that's not true. Does God understand that we were well-intentioned? Of course he does. But does that mean we obeyed? No, it doesn't. Does God understand that we gave it a good try? Of course he does. But does that mean that that is constituting true obedience? No, it doesn't. Romans 6 reminds us that we are to kill sin. Sin cannot just be mostly dead. It must die. Ephesians 4, 
we put off and we put on. We don't just partially do that and we don't just do one or the other. We have to do it all. Perseverance. You want to know what true obedience is to God? You want to know what qualifies as true obedience? Finish the job. Truly obey. Persevere. Yahweh tells Israel, don't just gather the wood. You need to do that. That's important. That's the practice. But then you got to rebuild the house. You got to finish the job. And then you've obeyed. At least that's what we think, but that's actually not true. You say, what? But you finished the job. If the job is done, it's done. No, there's one more. It's not just about a starting point. It's not just about being proactive. It's not just about practicing. It's not just even about persevering. There is something more to it than that. And this is so critical. Notice the next phrase. Rebuild the house of God so that you have to have the right purpose. You have to have the right purpose. This is not just about getting something done. If you think that you are just doing something to do it, doing something to check it off on your list of things to do, doing something so you finish it and you can feel good about yourself for finishing it, you have not obeyed. Because God has defined true obedience not only from the heart at the beginning, but all the way to the end of it in your purpose. And all of that has to be following him. You have to have the right purpose. And notice what he says. So that I, did you catch that? Obedience is not about you or me. It's not about how we feel. It's not about making ourselves better. It's not about self-improvement. May those things happen? Of course they might, but that's not why we obey. That's not our purpose. Our obedience is about who? God. It must be unto him so that I, God says, may be pleased with it. If we are just going to church or reading our Bible or praying so that we can get something done or feel better about ourselves or be satisfied or benefited, you have not obeyed. All you have worshipped is yourself. True obedience is about worshipping God. It's about being unto him. And that God-centered focus about obedience It causes us and compels us to please him. Notice what the text says. So that I might be pleased with it. The idea of pleased is the idea of accepting. And the idea of accepting is what God often talks about, an acceptable sacrifice. And we remember in the book of Malachi that God says not every sacrifice is acceptable. Sometimes people gave God things that were disqualified things that did not please him, things that should never have been offered to him. And God says, just because you give it doesn't entitle and doesn't automatically mean that it automatically will be accepted. You have to give the best unto God. We know that. And here is what God is reminding his people. You can't just finish a job and have a temple. It has to be good enough that you're confident I will like it. I will like it. I was one time walking with a student who was struggling with his homework, and he said, how do I remember that I need to do this well unto the Lord? And I said, well, in the book of Haggai, it says that Israel has to build a temple so that I will be pleased with it. So you have to do your homework well enough that not the faculty member will be pleased with it, but that God will be pleased with it. And he stopped and looked at me and he goes, that works. (laughs) That's what we have to remember. Obedience has never been about ourselves. In our entire life, everything we do in it, we're not here just to satisfy ourselves or our boss or another person. We're here to offer something to who? To God. And that determines the standard by which we do it. And you say, oh, Abner, you're just causing everybody to be nervous and perfectionistic. No, no, that's not what is going on here. Because perfectionists and perfectionistic people, they're trying to please who? Themselves. By what standard? The arbitrary one they make. 
They're not trying to please God by the standards set in his word. They're just trying to do what they want to the level that they want it to be at. That's perfectionism. That's just another form of selfishness. What we are looking for, what God is looking for, is will you do something according to my word so that I'm actually pleased? Is our obedience about God? And if so, is our obedience being shaped to the standard that pleases him? But it's not just that. It's not just that something needs to please him. Notice, it's the next phrase. It needs to praise him. So that I would be pleased with it, says Yahweh, and I would be glorified. Glorified. The idea, the root idea of the word glory means weight. Something heavy. If you want a picture, it's, it's the picture of somebody's footprint in the sand. You know how deep and how big it is, and that reflects upon the person. The idea of glory is the impression that God gives with all that he is upon any person as he overwhelms them with his gravitas, with his weightiness, with his severity, with his majesty. That's the nature of glory. And to give God glory then means this, that your actions, think about this, this is the nature of worship, that your actions match, they correspond, they do justice to the weightiness of God. That is what worship is all about. It is conveying back to God all that God is. You say, I could never convey to God all that God is. That's why worship is eternal. Because there is never a moment where you could ever convey and ever match or ever express or do justice to or have corresponding the weightiness that is God. And God is glorified when we obey him. That is true. God is glorified when he demonstrates his power in us to do things that we could never do, like rebuild the temple in the historical past. Or in Exodus 14, God says, I will be glorified when I exalt my people before Pharaoh. He will show his glory. He will show that he is unsurpassed and unparalleled through these things. But if you're talking about rebuilding the temple, one of the ways that God demonstrates his glory is by coming down in his glorious presence and filling the temple with his glory. And in fact, there is a promise in the end times that there will be a temple rebuilt by the Messiah and God's glory will fill the temple even as he says this in Isaiah 6 and Numbers 14 and Habakkuk chapter 2, he will fill the earth with his glory. That is what he will do so that every cranny, every inch, every millimeter of this entire world, of the entire created order is filled with his glory to this extent that Isaiah 24 says this, that the sun will no longer shine and the moon and the stars will no longer give their light. Why? Because God will be the only light there is. And the reason for this then is that God truly fills the earth with his glory because his light is there. And on the other hand, it is also this. His glory will be so abundant and it'll be so clear and it'll be so full, there will be no competitors. There will be no competitors. All competition is canceled out so that you know there is only one and one and only one that fills the world with his light and his glory, and that is God. And now what you have then here, and this is a humbling thought, God is saying to Israel, rebuild that temple, pave the way for my glory. You get the awesome task, Israel. You get the amazing privilege of building a structure that will continue the plan of God unto the moment that he actually glorifies himself like that. You think you're just building a measly building? If you do this right and you have the right heart, you should understand that this is all about maximizing the glory of God to come forever. That's the awesome privilege you have. For us as believers, our goal always is not only to honor God, but to do whatever we can to maximize the glory of God, to put him on display, to convey 
the weightiness of his work and worth to do something that could match or that could come close to, even though we know we could never come close to it, the grandeur that he is. That's our heart. It is exactly like Oswald Chambers' book expresses, my utmost for his highest. We will do whatever it takes. We will do whatever it takes so that he is most glorified in us. That is our goal. And God says, when you have that, then you have truly obeyed. Now, you might say, you might say, well, of course, for Israel, building a house and glorifying God in these kind of ways, that's for them. That's unique to them. We don't build buildings. We don't have the same opportunity. We're not them. And so this command, yeah, it has analogy to us, but it's just not the same for us. It's just not the same. Nothing could be further from the truth. Fundamentally, never forget this. What does the Bible say? You are the temple of God. Israel had to build a house for God. You are that house for God. And listen to this. Turn with me. And now I think this passage will make lots more sense. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 through 20. In a context that talks about dealing with false teachers and having purity in doctrine, dealing with immorality and having holiness, this is what Paul reminds believers, us. Or do you not know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit? We are the temple. Verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so what? So glorify God in your body. He says, you're the temple, glorify God. What does Haggai say? Build the temple and glorify God. Why? Because they're the one and the same thing. You think that the command of Haggai was just for the people of Haggai's day? You're wrong. You have the exact same command. Paul is giving you the exact same exhortation. Paul is continuing the exact same theology as Haggai because Paul says you are the temple and therefore you in your body should be glorifying God. You should be doing everything to both give God the maximum glory, my utmost for his highest, even as you participate in God's plan to set up for the final reality that God will fill the earth with all of his glory. You are the continuation of the temple for this time. God has always had a temple. Every period of redemptive history, he's had a temple. He's had a tabernacle. And then he's had a temple in Solomon's day. And then there was a erected temple that's going to be in Haggai's day. And even when Jesus came, there was a what? A temple in Herod's day. And even when that temple is destroyed, the church now is the what? There's always been a temple. You are the continuation of that. And by doing our part of true obedience and glorifying God in our body, we pave the way for the time when God's glory will come to a temple. And it won't just fill the earth externally, it'll fill the earth even what? Internally, from the inside out. And that will be the fullest expression of the glory of God. And we play a part in that. We play a part in that. That's our opportunity, and that's our responsibility. And when we have such a heart to honor God and to see him be honored and to look forward to his honor and to do all the things for that greater goal, then God says, you've obeyed. Then you've obeyed. That's true obedience. And so... We're not different from the time of Haggai. That command still goes to us. And so you have to have the right starting point for obedience. You have to have the right proactivity for it. You have to have the right practice of it. You have to be able to persevere, and you have to have the right purpose. It is for the glory of God in the end. And every breath we take and everything we do, that's how obedience works. Well, we need to pay all the more attention to such true obedience because it's not just that there is a substance of true obedience. This brings us to the second point. 
there is a seriousness of disobedience. A seriousness of disobedience. Verses 9 through 11. Sometimes we become callous to the exhortation to obey, whether generally or specific. God's truth can go in one ear and out the other. And we don't pay enough attention. We fail to heed the warning of Hebrews, which reminds us that we need to pay all the more attention to Christ. So how do we do that? We need to remember how serious disobedience is. And here we go. There are some reasons why disobedience is so serious. One, because it brings God's discipline. It brings God's discipline. Notice verse 9. You look for much, and behold, you get a little. God has already said this to the nation of Israel earlier in this text, and it was about reminding them that they were under discipline. And Israel should have known that they were under discipline because God's word said this in Deuteronomy 28. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And one of the curses is this, you'll have no crops. So when Israel has no crops, what should they assume? They're under curse because they have what? Sinned. Should be easy. God said, I already told you this. Hundreds of years ago, just pay attention. And this is helpful because we must be very careful. We must be very careful. Sometimes people wonder, how do I know I'm under discipline? Take a good look at your life. And on one hand, yes, are there times when God's people suffer innocently? That's true. James 1, we go through trials. 2 Peter 1, we go through trials and we're being refined. We could talk about Revelation chapter 1, where the church is even being refined and they're under persecution, not for anything that they have done. We could talk about Job chapter 1, and Job suffered innocently. You could almost go to any chapter 1. I'm just kidding. But, but I think you understand. There's a lot of chapter 1s that talk about how you can suffer not for your own sin. And God is not disciplining you. And we understand that. But on the other hand, for that very reason, the Bible does talk about discipline. The loss of joy. The loss of blessing. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. The burden that is even on our bodies. Psalm 32. And when these things happen, we heed the exhortation of Paul, test yourself. Test yourself. Check yourself. Maybe this is God's wake-up call, and you should wake up to it. And that's because discipline is serious. Discipline is serious. Can't get much more, so to speak, serious than verse 9 when you are looking at your food supply and it's dwindling away. Israel, discipline is serious. Therefore, disobedience is serious. Have some true obedience. Repent. And you say, well, how much more serious can it get? I mean, food supply is almost lethal. Well, notice the next phrase. Notice the next phrase. You bring the harvest to your house, and I blow it away. The idea is, you got a little bit. That's already a disappointment because you planted a lot. But then you bring the little bit home, and you think, I got it home. It's safe. And then God just comes on to your house. <laughs> And he blows it away, and it's gone. Reminds me of, you know, when you buy ice cream, and you buy two scoops because you want a little bit extra for yourself, and then all your family comes in with spoons, and they eat it. And then you say, but at least there's a little bit left, and then it falls on the concrete. You can't win. You can't win. And while we laugh at that example for Israel, it's no laughing matter. They bring in the grain. They think, at least we got this much left. And then God just blows it away, and it scatters like chaff. And this kind of situation, it has a certain air of certainty to it, does it not? No matter what you do, you can't win. You cannot outsmart God. There's a certain kind of intensity to it. Everything you have, I will take it away from you. And therefore, there's a certain kind of clarity to it. These kinds of things can't happen by random chance. And what does this prove? God did it. And what does the text say? I blew it away. Did you catch that? It didn't just say it was blown away. God says, I, I myself blew it away. If you read earlier in chapter one, God talks about how you had a purse and there were holes in it, how the harvest didn't come in, how you had clothes, but they never could have, uh, they could never fit you. He never talks about himself in those earlier descriptions. Here he says this, I did it all. I did it all. And the reason he's raising this is 
you're not just under discipline, you're under divine condemnation. You're under divine condemnation. You want to know why disobedience is so serious? Because now God is against you. The almighty God of the universe is against you, and you will never be able to win. You think you're so smart. You can collect a little bit. You can take it home. God will just blow it away like chaff, and it makes a good joke for us, not for you. That is how serious this is. Hebrews 10 reminds us of this. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You don't want to play with disobedience. That's a suicidal game. That's why disobedience is so serious. It brings on discipline. It brings on divine condemnation. And disobedience is serious, frankly, because it is serious. Notice what happens at the end of this. God says, I blow it away. And the next phrase is, why? That's a good question. That's the question you want to be asking when God is against you. When God has turned his back on you, when God is against you, when God is your enemy, you want to know why. That's a very good question. And notice what God says. This is the nature of disobedience. Why? Because my house is in ruins, and you, each one of you, are running to his own house. And you say, it's because they didn't rebuild the temple. Yes, that's the reason. And you look above, and if you read through Haggai, it's a short book. Only like five verses ago did God just say the same thing. And you might wonder to yourself, why does God have to repeat himself? He could have just said, see above. He could have just said, you already know the answer. Why does he have to do this again? Have you noticed that people repeat themselves when they want to emphasize something? You know, when they want to emphasize something, they repeat it. <laughs> because it's important. And God is saying here to his people, you, what, you're wondering what this is all about? I'll make it so clear to you. It's just about this one thing. It's about not building the temple. That's it. That's it. And this is important because how often do we think it's just one sin? It, it can't be that big of a deal. It's just a single act. It's just one thing. It's not the worst of all possible things to do. So it can't be that important. It can't matter that much. We are good at deflecting our sin. And God says, let's be clear. You're right. There are things that don't matter in your life like preferences, like opinion, like things are, that are optional. And yes, let's be really, really clear. Some sins are worse than others. We can see that in the scriptures, whether that you look at the downward spiral of Romans 1 or Christ saying it will be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than you, Israel, at a certain time. Yes, we know some sins are worse than others, but all sins are serious. And disobedience is serious because it always is serious. God says, yeah, it's just one sin, but it could kill you. It's that serious. Never deflect on your disobedience. Never. And by the way, if you actually read this carefully, you'll see how insulting it is. Notice what God says. My house, he says, my house is in ruins. You want to know why your sin is so wicked? It's just one sin, you say. No, it's wicked. Why? Because it's personal. It's a personal insult against God. My house, he says. Israel says, well, it, it lies, what? In ruins. That's what you think of God. You think he should just be a wasteland. You think he's trash. That's the idea of the word waste. It's the garbage. That's what you think of God when you don't put him first. He's the last priority in your life when you sin. He's the last thought you have when you sin. That's insulting. And all the while, look at what they do. You run each one of you to your own house. You love your house. You love yourself. Of course, it's just one sin, you say. It's just one sin. It can't be that big of a deal. It's the most insulting thing to God. Even one sin that doesn't look like a big deal to you. It's insulting to God. And so sin is serious brings discipline. It brings divine condemnation. Disobedience in and of itself is serious. It's offensive. 
So what happens? It'll bring your destruction. That's why it's so serious. Notice what God says. Verse 10. Therefore, the heaven will be restrained from its due against you, and the earth will be restrained against its produce. With the language of heaven and earth. God is now talking about something bigger than harvests, bigger than clothing, bigger than purses with wages in them that you can see earlier on. Now you're talking about heaven and earth. And when you talk about heaven and earth, you're talking about the entire world. And that's what God is now going to set against his people. Have you ever heard these people, you know, they're in distress. They've had a bad day and they say, oh, the whole world's against me. And, you know, they're being, I mean, they really believe that, but you know and they know that that's not true. The whole world isn't against them. You know that. And you kind of say, hey, chill out. This is, you're ridiculous. Like, stop exaggerating. God says, no, for you, if you sin, I will turn the whole world against you. I will. Heaven and earth. And you say, what does that look like? God says this, verse 11, I will call, notice there, God himself is intervening against this people. This is divine determination. And what does he determine? He determines a a drought, a drought. You do realize that droughts are some of the most devastating things ever. I know it's hard to believe that in California because we live in perpetual drought. But here's the mitigating factor. We just draw water from everywhere around the United States. You can't do that in Israel. Because everyone in Israel who's their neighbor is an enemy. And you might say, well, that's true of California too. Uh, That's how they all view us. (laughs) Yeah, but there are rules that help mitigate that. They don't have those rules, especially back then in Israel. There's no way to draw water. You have no water, it's over. And it's not just over for you. It's over for your entire productivity. It's not just over for your productivity and your nation. It's multi-generational. Because the the consequences of not having water on the ground affect three to four to five generations after you. It's a devastating, ecocidal kind of attack. It's massive. God says, I told you I would do this. Deuteronomy 28 makes it clear. I will send a drought. And notice, you won't be able to escape it. Why? Because it's against the earth or the land, and it's against the mountains. You know, this is, this is an important reality, and it's something I remind people about the flood. If the flood was just local, and you had 120 years to prepare for it, you know what I would do with, if I was Noah? I would not be building an ark. I would just take a walk. If it's a local flood, if it's only going to be in a certain region, then you could just walk out of it. You have 120 years. Take one, you know, take 50 steps a day, and you'll be, it'll, you'll be gone out of the region. It's fine. But the reason Noah couldn't do that and he needed to build an ark is because you can't escape a global flood. And what God says here is you can't escape this drought. You go high up on the mountains, you think that's where the, the water will collect? Uh-uh. You go onto the earth, you go onto the land, you go into any region of the land that you have access to, you think you can escape? No, you won't. I'll make it everywhere. So it's inescapable. It'll be against every single thing, your grain, your new wine, your oil, everything that comes out of the ground. It doesn't matter if it's early harvest, late harvest, major staple, minor staple, rare food, common food. It doesn't matter. It's all going away. And on top of that, it's not just that this will destroy your food supply. It'll destroy your entire nation. Everything in your nation, your people, they're gone. Your cattle, they're gone. All the works of your hands, gone. It won't just affect your farms and your agriculture. It'll affect every single business endeavor you have outside of that. And what you are facing, Israel, is total national and economic collapse. You are about ready to die by virtue of your country. That's what's about to happen, Israel. You want to know why disobedience is serious? because it really will bring about your destruction. It'll bring about your destruction. And you say, well, would God do this to us? Would God do this to his people? Just look at history. Israel is sent into exile. Israel is punished. You look at Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, and you read that some people were sick and even died 
for mistaking and not properly handling the Lord's Supper. God will discipline, and he can discipline in the most extreme ways. Does that mean that every time you suffer that's happening? No, let's be clear. But never, never misunderstand that God can and will discipline. What you sow, you shall reap. We know that. And so the solution is to repent. The solution is to repent. Turn with me to Romans 12 as we finish and thinking about this. Romans 12. Maybe you have this verse memorized and you don't need to turn it there. That's okay too, of course. What does Paul say? In light of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. As we're thinking about the whole notion of the temple, as we're thinking about all that it means that is worship and that we are not apart from what was commanded to Israel, we are actually a part of it. It continues to us because they were to construct the temple and we are the what? The temple. And that's why we are to offer what? Sacrifices. We are continuing this. This is meant directly for us. Paul says, offer your bodies as sacrifices. And notice he gives three terms, living sacrifices, holy and what? Pleasing What do we need to be? We need to have ourselves as pleasing unto God. What did God want? He wanted us to have a starting point from the heart. He wanted us to be proactive. He wanted us to practice it. He wanted us to persevere. And he wanted us to have the right purpose. And the purpose was so that I would be pleased and glorified. What are we to be? Pleasing to him. You need to have true obedience to him. And we need to be holy sacrifices. That means we're not contaminated by sin and disobedience. Why? Because sin and disobedience, it's serious. It's serious. It brings upon discipline. It brings upon divine condemnation. It brings upon God's destruction upon us. And here's what Paul reminds us, though. All of that, that true obedience, that true worship, that avoidance of disobedience, what is that to be for us? That's all part of how we are a living sacrifice. This is not just a one-time thing. This is with your whole what? Life. All that you live. And in that way, we are different than Israel. Why? Because we're not just to build one building one time. This is what we're supposed to do with our entire life. This obedience is not just for one construction project. This obedience is as we live in all that we do. That's the mentality of every breath and every activity and everything we have. That's the way we ought to live. That's what God requires for true obedience. It's the breath of our entire existence for him. And so, brothers and sisters, may it be that everything we do in every step we take follows exactly what Haggai has reminded and defined for us as true obedience. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we are so thankful. Thank you for the practical nature of Haggai. Thank you for the practical reminders of the nature of true obedience. May we from our heart, with every breath we take, with all the perseverance that we have, live lives as a living sacrifice, that are truly pleasing to you, that it is our utmost for your highest. In your name we pray, amen.